Well, good morning. It's good seeing you guys. Welcome to Forest Park. Uh, if you have your Bibles, let's turn to Acts chapter 27 as we're continuing our series through, through the book of Acts. Um, and so we're going to spend three more weeks in the book of Acts. Uh, so, and then July we'll start our, our new series. But uh, let, let, let me catch you guys all up to speed of what's going on in, in the book of Acts. And so Paul uh, finds himself in prison. And after two years in jail waiting for either a verdict or a new trial, finally he finds himself appearing uh, before Festus, who's the new governor of Judea. And so when Paul was asked to face his accusers in Jerusalem, uh, Paul said no. He used his rights and his privileges as a Roman citizen, and he appealed to Caesar. And so Festus kind of found himself in a difficult spot, wanting to do the Jews a favor and deliver Paul over to them in Jerusalem, but also wanting to obey and uphold the Roman law. He had no choice but to grant Paul his request. But the problem was Festus did not know, nor did he understand the charges that was brought against Paul. So he did not know what to write to send Paul with a letter to Caesar. He had no idea what was going on. And when King Agrippa visited Festus to honor him in his new position that he had, Festus saw this as an opportunity to consult uh, King Agrippa on this matter because King Agrippa was familiar with the Roman law and also the Jewish law. And, and so this great hearing took place. And Paul appeared before Agrippa, Festus, and the rest of the dignitaries, and he used this as an opportunity to boldly proclaim the gospel to them. Now, in his message, he, he does something really in interesting. He, he informs indirectly Agrippa and the rest of the audience about their desperate spiritual condition, their desperate need for a salvation. But the way he does it is by talking about the wonderful privileges of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we see how Festus responds to this gospel message. He interrupts Paul and he thinks that Paul is just outright mad that this gospel message that Paul is clinging to and proclaiming is absolute foolish. And King Agrippa, on the other hand, he's kind of indifferent. He tells Paul, do you really think you're going to convince me to become a Christian in such a short time? And he just finds himself indifferent saying, you know what? I really don't need Jesus. I got my royal attire, I, I got my position, I have my authority, I don't need Jesus. And yet at the end of our story, both of them agreed that Paul was innocent and did not deserve to be in prison or to deserve death. Now Paul is on his way to Rome. And so this trip uh, is, 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 it can be broken up in three stages. We see Paul is going to sail from Caesarea to Myra, and from Myra to Malta, and from Malta eventually to Italy. But really what's happening is as this drama is unfolding along the way, things go from bad to worse, we really see a wonderful picture of the providence of God, of God keeping his word as he delivers Paul. So, so let's look at our story in Acts chapter 27, verse 1. It says this, when it was decided that we were to sail to Italy, they handed over Paul and some of the prisoners to a centurion named Julius of the Imperial Regiment. When he had boarded a ship of Otrametia, we put to sea, intending to sail ports along the coast of Asia. Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with us. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and allowed him to go to his friends to receive their care. 
And when we had put out to sea from there, we sailed along the northern coast of Cyprus because the wind were against us. And after sailing through the open sea of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we reached Myra and Lycia. So, so, so let's stop here and, and kind of talk a little bit about this. So, so notice in Acts chapter 27, verse 1, the story begins with the reference, we. So when Luke is writing this, he's talking about we. So we know uh, from the beginning of our series and even throughout our study of the book of Acts as Luke wrote the, the, the book of Acts. And we've seen that Luke proves himself to be a diligent, intelligent, and accurate historian. And so he's reporting this as a personal eyewitness experience as he's recording the trip, the nature of the ship, the experience of the sailors and how the sailors engaged everything. And the reason I'm mentioning this to you is not to show you how smart I am, but it's really important because there are some who look at the story and say, you know what, this story did not really exist. Luke is over-exaggerating or this story did exist, but Paul was not involved. So the storm took place. However, Luke just injected Paul into the storm. But the reason we can say reject that narrative is because the reference of we. He's not talking about a secondhand experience where he heard this from Paul or from somebody else. He personally experienced everything that was happening as they were traveling together to Rome. Now the final destination is they're going from Caesarea and the final destination is Italy. Where, that's where Rome is. And in Paul's world, Rome was the center of the world. And it was a very strategic place uh, for, for, for the gospel to be used as a launching pad because everything went in and out of Rome. Since that was the center, Paul in his mind thought, if I can reach Rome, that would be the launching pad for the gospel to be spread through the ends of the earth. And even three years later, before Paul found himself in prison, he wrote a letter to the churches in Rome talking about his desire to visit Rome and, and to pass through Rome and for later for him to go to Spain and so he's already spent 25 years of ministering in the eastern part of Rome and now he's looking at the rest of his life to now start ministering in the western part of Rome and under the best conditions for them to sail from Caesarea to Rome would take about five weeks and yet in our story when things are all done it would have taken them well over 16 weeks to travel from Caesarea to Rome. And so Paul, who's he traveling with? And Luke tells us he's, he's traveling with his companions, Luke and Aristarchus. He's traveling with other prisoners and also with a centurion named Julius. And Luke even mentions to us that, that Julius seems to show a spirit of generosity and kindness to Paul and his companions. And so when they made it to Sidon, he allowed them to get off the ship and to visit other brothers and sisters in Christ, to be taken care of their personal needs and to encourage one another and to minister to one another. And we also see that he's traveling with prisoners, now, these prisoners were probably not likely to stand trial in a Roman court, but rather, more than likely, they were used to be part of an entertainment industry where they would participate in the arena before Caesar and the rest of its citizens. Now, now things seem to be going pretty smooth here. They, they go from Caesarea to Myra. Uh, they eventually, they stop at Sidon. They, they kind of run into a, bit, a little bit of wind, but then eventually they make it. 
And yet what we're going to see is things start to change from Myra and things go from okay to bad to awful. Let's look at verse 6 here. It says this. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. Sailing slowly for many days with difficulty we arrived of Snidus. Since the wind did not allow us to approach it, we sailed along the south side of Crete of Salmon. With still more difficulty, we sailed along the coast and came to a place called Fair Haven near the city of Lycia. So, so here we see in Myra, they find a ship from Alexandria that was sailing to Italy. Now, more than likely, this ship from, from Alexandria was a freight ship that was transporting gray. And so Luke tells us in verse 7 to 8 that they're already experiencing difficulty as the situation is deteriorating and progress is slow because of the contrary winds. And the passengers and the crew were probably relieved when they finally reached uh, the, the, the port named Fair Havens to, to rest there and to make further plans. But the problem with the port that they stopped, it was not suitable for winter. And as winter was fast approaching, and I'm just going to summarize the rest of the text before we get into Paul's first speech. As winter was fast approaching, and this was not a good port, they were kind of debating, do we stay here and spend winter here even though this is not ideal? Or do we decide to travel further west where there is a better port to, to rest for the winter? And Paul looks at the guys and saying, guys... Winter is here. This is not a good situation. If you dare keep on traveling, you will lose the ship. You will lose the cargo. And more than likely, you will lose your life. But because he was the minority and the majority rejected his advice, they determined to travel only 40 miles west to a better harbor at Phoenix. Now, now, initially, as they're traveling, things kind of go smoothly and actually go so smooth that more than likely you can imagine the crew making fun of Paul with, with his cautioning words. But out of nowhere, there was a storm that came over the mountain and it's called the, the Northeaster and it came down and got a hold of the ship. And the ship was unable to, to go through the storm and to fight the wind and they were forced to just drift southwest. And the sailors, they, they attempted to secure the ship by securing the lifeboats and trying to undergird the ship itself. Next, the next thing they started doing was, was letting down some of the drift anchor to make sure that they're not going too far off course or, or to protect themselves from any deadly shawls. And then on the third day, they started throwing off some of the cargo, some of the tackle to make sure that the ship is a little lighter so that it can float higher on the water. And yet, despite all of these precautions, the storm is just raging and hope is slipping by fast. And we see how these men, the passengers and the crew, are now left with no gear, no stars to get their course and their direction, and now they're starting to lose hope. And yet in the midst of this crisis, Paul addresses everyone in the ship. Let, let's hop over to verse 21. Paul says this, Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul then stood up among them and said, You men should have followed my advice not to sail from Crete and sustain this damage and loss. 
Now I urge you to take courage because there will be no loss of any of your lives but only of the ship. For last night an angel of the God I belong to and serve stood by me and said, Don't be afraid, Paul. It is necessary for you to appear before Caesar and indeed God has graciously given you all those who are sailing with you. So take courage, men, because I believe, God, that it will be just the way it was told to me. But we have to run aground on some island. So obviously in the midst of the storm, everyone is hungry, they're hopeless, they're directionless, and Paul stands up and gives a speech. And he starts off with his speech, almost you can imagine like a told you so speech. Now, now I don't think Paul was trying to be a jerk and say, I told you so, you should have listened to me. But I think the reason he's bringing it up is to show his credibility as a speaker. Like, like look, I'm not some idiot. I have traveled. I have some travel experience. And, and what I have to say, I kind of told you this was going to happen. Please listen to me and what I have to say. And then he encourages them. He, he gives them good news on this occasion, saying, look, we're not going to die. Our lives will be saved. Well, we will be delivered. However, we are going to lose the ship. And so maybe a question we might have as we look at this text is that how can Paul be so confident in a time of such hopelessness? Like, like how could he stand up among these sailors and this crew as they've been battering by the storm? They have no gear. They have no stars. They don't know where they're drifting towards. It's not like they have a GPS or a, or a radar or anything like that. And even the most experienced sailors have lost all hope. And Paul stands up. And I think the reason why Paul could have such confidence in the midst of such hopelessness is because he received a word from the Lord through an angel that advised him in the middle of the night. So in other words, the words that Paul is speaking is not his own words of what he's hoping and wishing and believing in, but rather what he's speaking to them is the very word of God he himself received. And the angel gave Paul two promises. Let's look at verse 24 again. He says, don't be afraid. Here's the first promise. Because it is necessary for you to appear before Caesar. So Paul can't, does not have to be afraid because the very first promise, you will make it to Rome and appear before Caesar. The second promise, he, he says, and indeed, end of verse 24, indeed, God has graciously given you all those who are sailing with you. So the second promise is all those aboard on the ship will be gracious, graciously delivered. And it's because of these promises that Paul received, he believes in the instruction, do not fear. Now, this speech that Paul gave that we just read, verses 21 to 26, that, this really is the main central theme of this entire narrative. Because here, Paul is encouraging these hungry, hopeless, directionless sailors and passengers that the Lord would deliver them through His gracious providence. That the Lord will keep His promise. That the Lord will see that Paul would make it to Rome. But despite 
these promises, Paul still warns the crew, this is what's going to happen. You are going to lose your ship. So they receive the promise that the Lord is going to deliver them, that they are going to make it through it, and that Paul is going to make it to Rome, but they're still going to lose the ship. So in other words, it was a call to endure and believe. The sailors had to endure the storm. The sailors had to believe that God is going to deliver them. And we see this theme even going on in the Gospels where Jesus addresses his disciples to not fear. In these moments when they found themselves in the ship in a raging storm, Jesus comes near to them and says, Do not be afraid, for it is I. In other words, he's showing them in Mark 6, verse 50, that he is Lord of the storm. And yet in the middle of the storm, he calls his disciples to endure and believe. And the Lord even gives similar reassuring words through the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 43, verse 1 to 2, this is what he says. Now this is what the Lord says. The one who created you, Jacob, and the one who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. And when you pass through the waters... I will be with you, and the rivers will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, and the flame will not burn you. Notice what God says through the prophet Isaiah. He's not saying, hey, you're going to avoid the waters, you're going to avoid the fire, nothing's going to happen to you, everything is just going to be perfect and dandy. Now, what does he say? Even when you walk through the waters, I'll be with you, and the river won't overwhelm you. Even when you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched. I will protect you. In other words, kind of what we talked about a couple weeks ago, the Lord never saves us from these things. He always saves us through these things. And so, so what do we see here? We, we see uh, in our story in Acts chapter 27, we, we see Jesus and his disciples. We even see God speaking through his prophet Isaiah, how the Lord delivers his people through these storms. And yet, what is their calling? What are they supposed to be doing in the middle of the storm? Endure and believe. And so if you're taking notes, here's the very first thing we can learn. Here's here's our calling in the midst of the storm. Our calling is to endure and believe. It's not to move around the storm. It's not to avoid the storm whatsoever because here's the reality. There are certain things in life you cannot avoid. And what are you called to do? Not whine, but endure and believe. Trust the Lord as you find yourself in the middle of the storm. But here's a question. Okay, I'm I'm called to endure and believe regardless of what I'm going through as I find myself in the middle of the storm or walking through waters or walking through the fire. I endure and believe, but how can I endure and believe or maybe another question is why can i endure and believe think about paul here in, in acts 27 again what what set part what set paul apart from the rest of the crew on the ship but like what set him apart look think about in his speech again he was able to give this the, the this crew members and the passengers assurance why because of the word from the Lord, the promises he received from God, 
and the angel that appeared to him. In other words, the presence from God. So what set him apart from the rest of the crew is the presence of God and the promises of God. And I think that's applicable to us. What sets us aside from the rest of the world as we're enduring the storm? The presence of God and the promises of God. So in other words, if you're taking notes, we can say this. We can, the reason why we can endure and believe is because of the presence of God and the promises of God. So we're called to endure and believe. And why can we endure and believe? Because we've received the promises of God that we cling to. We have comfort in the presence of God. And so this to us should be encouraging. So we, in other words, when we find ourselves in the middle of a storm, in the middle of a trial, or whatever's going on in life, we do not have to fear. Why? Because we have the promises of God that we can cling to. We have the presence of God that we can rest in. And this is what Paul did. He tells them, look, the Lord is with us. An angel appeared to me. Here's the promises he made to us. I'm going to make it to Rome. Everyone will be saved, but the ship will be lost, which means you have to endure. You have to believe. Now, now normally... After the Lord appears with an angel and makes a promise, you would just hope that things would just get better. But it doesn't. They find themselves on the 14th night, they continue to drift. Okay, this is not a 24-hour storm. Two weeks battered by the wind and the waves, drifting to who knows where. And on the 14th night, they continue to drift. And the experienced sailors are saying, by now, we should at least be close to land. So so they're starting to sensing land is close. And and so they set out some of of anchors to kind of measure how deep everything is. And some sailors even start to pray to their gods, but because they could not trust their gods, some of them pretended to set down anchors. And yet in their pretense of setting down anchors, they were setting down some of the lifeboats, hoping that they could jump into these lifeboats and row safely to shore. And when Paul saw this, look at the crazy advice he gives the Roman centurion. And look at how the Roman centurion responds to it. Look at verse 31. Paul said this to the centurion, to the soldiers. Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut the ropes holding their skiff and let it drop away. Now now, now think about how reckless this is. Lifeboats are called lifeboats for a reason. When the ship is sinking, what do you have the lifeboats for? They already know the ship is toast. We need the lifeboats. And yet Paul says, unless everybody stays in this boat, we cannot be saved. And the centurion trusts Paul so much at this time that he orders his soldiers to cut free the lifeboats. So now, no tackle, no gear, no lifeboats. And at dawn... Paul gives us third words of instructions to the group. Look at verse 33. 
It says, when it was about daylight, they don't know because it's still storming. Paul urged them all to take food, saying, today is the 14th day that you've been waiting and going without food, having eaten nothing. So I urge you to take some food, for this is for your survival, since none of you will lose a hair from your head. And after he said these things, he had taken some bread and he gave thanks to God in the presence of all of them. And after he broke it, he began to eat. And they were all encouraged and took food themselves. And all, there were 276 of us on the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they began to lighten the ship by throwing the grain overboard into the sea. So here again, what does Paul do? He, he, he gives them assurance of God's protection. He uses this biblical analogy, not a hair on your head will be lost. And then he urges them to eat as he shows them the visible display that God is the giver of all things. And so he takes the bread and he gives thanks, believing that this wonderful bread, even in this dreadful storm, came from the Lord. And he gives it to them, and they eat it. Now, now, now again, what, what, what picture do we see here? It's very similar to, to the picture uh, of Jesus feeding the 4,000 and the 5,000. He takes the bread, he gives thanks to God, he distributes it, and they eat. It's very similar to, to Jesus eating with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. It's, it's very similar to the Lord's Supper. And now some scholars might say, oh, this was, the Lord. this was not the Lord's Supper. They were not eating it because they believed in Jesus. They were eating it because they needed nourishment. And what Paul does, he used this as opportunity to show them that the nourishment ultimately comes from God, that he is the giver of all good things. So take it and eat it. And for some unknown crazy reason, they were all encouraged. And Luke tells us the severity of the situation and how big the ship was by how many people was on the ship. 276 of them. And after eating, what did they do? They began to throw all the cargo, all the grain, all the food off the ship. This was the last ditch. And the reason why they did it again is so that the ship could float higher. And I think what we can learn from this is notice the opportunities that Paul uses in the midst of the storm. Like in the midst of the storm, he uses every single opportunity to point people to God. He, he spoke about God. He spoke about the promises of God. He thanked God in prayer for the food. And so he ministered to these people in their hopelessness, giving them an alternative perspective, a ray of hope, something important to ponder. And the rest of the story, as the sun appeared on the horizon, the ship struck a sandbar. The stern was exposed to the pounding waves. And what Paul said, the ship would be destroyed. But, but then we see in the rest of our text, and I'm not going to read it just for time. I'm, I'm just going to summarize it. Uh, so now the soldiers, the, the ship is stuck on a sandbar, pounded by the waves. They have no more lifeboats. So, so how do we get to shore? And these soldiers find themselves in a double threat. They, first of all, have to jump up and swim to, soar, to shore to save their lives. But if one of the prisoners escape... They have to, they will face the penalty of a prisoner escape, which means their life 
for the life of a prisoner. So every prisoner that's escaped, that means it is their lives. So they, in their mind, thinking, in order to save ourselves, let's go ahead and kill all the prisoners before we jump into the sea uh, to make it to shore. But because of Julius and his fondness of Paul wanting to save his life, he ordered the soldiers to stop. And he tells everybody, if you can swim, jump and swim. If you can't swim, grab a plank and float, and hopefully you'll make it to the shore. And in verse 44, this is what Luke says. He says, the rest were to follow, some on planks and some on debris from the ship. And here's the part. And in this way, everyone safely reached the shore. In other words, God's word proved to be true. Which means we can trust God. So so here's your application. Is that we can trust in the providence of God. And the reason why I say we can trust in the providence of God is because who's Lord over the storm? God is. God is at work. God is accomplishing His purposes. God is conforming us into the image of Christ. And when we find ourselves in the midst of a storm, when we find ourselves in a time of being perplexed and with all the twists and all the bends and all the craziness that's going on in our world, what do we know is to be true? We know that we can trust God, that God is working out everything for the good of his people, for those he called, for those he loved. He does everything for our good and ultimately for his glory. William Cowper reminds us in this classic hymn, this is what he says. He says, God moves in a mysterious way. His wonder to perform, he plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. And even though we might not understand everything that is happening as we consider the twists and turns of life, we know that God is working. And we know that he is trustworthy. But here's our call. Our call is to endure and believe. It's not to whine. It's not to complain. It's not to give up. It's to endure and believe. And how can we endure and believe? By clinging to the promises of God. By resting in the comforting presence of God. We're not alone. He is with us. His spirit lives inside of us as we can rest in his presence, as we remind ourselves of his promises. But we have to endure. Like, it would be so easy for me to stand up here and say things are going to get better. I don't know. That's not our calling. Our calling is not to predict whether things are going to get better or how things are going to happen, but what is our calling? Endure. Believe knowing that we can trust God. And as we transition to this table, think about what this table represents. Think about what this table means for us. When when we find ourselves in the midst of a storm, when we find ourselves walking through fire, 
through bodies of water. How can we trust God? How can we cling to His promises? This table reminds us, first of all, God's faithfulness. Because back in Genesis, God made a promise. A promise that He will do battle against Satan. A promise that He will deal with our sin. A promise that He will bring us back, that He will redeem us, and that He would reconcile us. And we know that God has kept His promise. Why? Because this table is symbolic of it. Because on this table, it, we, we, we look at the elements as we're reminded of how Jesus' body was broken for us, how he stepped into this world, how he did battle against Satan, and how he defeated Satan by dying on a cross for our sins. And he did not remain dead, but he was raised on the third day. This table reminds us of His blood that was shed for us as His blood washes away our sins, the new covenant that He has. And so if God has been faithful in the past, He is faithful in the present, and He will be faithful in the future. And so this table reminds us that we can trust in the faithfulness of God, of what He's done in the past. But it doesn't just stop there. This table reminds us that we can trust God in the future for what is going to happen, where this table kind of gives us a shadow of the great wedding banquet, the great wedding feast that is coming, how Jesus is coming to make all things new, to destroy Satan once and for all, and to vanquish the very presence of sin, where we will be able to sit in the presence of God Eating and drinking and faith is no longer required. Endurance is no longer needed. The storm will be over. And so this is what the table helps us. It reminds us that we can trust God. It reminds us, it gives us hope for the future that one day the call to endurance and belief will no longer be a calling we need. Because we will finally be in the presence of God, living under His blessing, under His rule, enjoying Him forever. Then our calling from endurance to belief is going to change from calling to enjoy and worship and experience the presence of God eternally. And so as we get ready to sit at the table, I, I want you to think about maybe the life, the storms that you're facing. I want you to think about the calling that you have right now to endure and to believe. And I want you to think about how God has been already faithful to you through his son dying on the cross. Think about his body that was broken for you, his blood that was shed for you. Think about in your, in your mind as we're handing out these elements, think about the promise that is waiting for us, the great wedding banquet, the feast. We get to eat the best food in the presence of God, as sons and daughters of the King, heirs to the kingdom. Let, let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, we know that you are sovereign and that you are Lord of the storm and that nothing happens without you decreeing it and ordaining it. And that our life is in your hands. 
and that you've called us to endure and to believe, to trust you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to endure, help us to believe, help us to cling to you, to trust you. And, Lord, you know what we're going through. Lord, I pray that as we meditate upon your body that was broken for us, your blood that was shed for us, Lord, can you remind us of some of your promises? Can we cling to your promises? Can we find rest in your comforting presence, knowing that we will never be alone, that you are with us, that you are in us, and that nothing can separate us from your love, that all those the Father has given you are safely and securely in your hands? And that you promised us you'll never leave us, nor will you ever forsake us. And that there's no condemnation for those that are, who are in Christ. So encourage us with these words. As we sit at your table, as we find ourselves in the middle of a storm, enduring and believing, strengthen our faith as we look to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to think about this. You're in an ocean. You're done. No hope. And Jesus comes, but he doesn't throw a life ring and say, here, grab on it. He doesn't throw a life jacket and say, here, put this on. No, he jumps into that water. And he swims. And he gets a hold of you. And he exchanges his life for yours. And you're reminded that when I was dead on my sins, when I was down and out, when I was hopeless, directionless, without purpose, and without life, he came. And he died in my place. And he holds out this bread. And he said, this bread represents my body that was broken for you. Eat it so you will never forget it. Take it and eat it. And then he takes the cup. And he said, this cup represents my blood that was shed for you that will wash away your sins, that will buy you back the new covenant that you'll have in me. Drink it so that you will never forget. And you take it and you drink it. Our Lord Jesus, who are we that you were mindful of us, that you exchanged your life for ours. And by it, you lived a life we could not live, and you died a death we were supposed to die. In our place, when we were undeserving. And so, Lord, I pray that we'll never forget Lord, I pray when we find ourselves in the middle of the storm and we're called to endure and believe, help us to look to the cross. Help us to look to you as we find strength in you. 
knowing because of what you've done on the cross for us, we've been redeemed, we've been reconciled, we belong to you. Your spirit lives inside of us. What can man do to us? And so, Lord, help us to be faithful and help us to endure. Help us to keep our eyes on you. Help us to rest in you and to look to you. Lord, come meet us where we are. Deal with our anxieties. Deal with our fears. Lord, help us to surrender our idols, the things that we're clinging to, the things that we're putting our hope in. As the storm is removing all of those things, help us to cling to you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us stand. Let us worship our King.